Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. It's great to see you. Hi, Jana. Great to be with you. Before we dive deeper into this week's chapter reading, I just want to take a moment and thank our listeners who have reached out to us over these past weeks to thank us for the podcast and have been just sending wonderful notes. And yeah, I just wanted to take a moment and thank them for their great feedback. And just to say that it means a lot to us and we're reading them and we're very excited about it. That's great. I'm glad people are uh, enjoying the podcast. Today, you will be talking about Arendt's definition of racism and why and how it is a powerful ideology and the distinction to race thinking and its history. It's a chapter six in our current book, Origins of Totalitarianism. And I just wanted to ask you if for a moment we can connect it to today and if you could expand a little bit on Arendt's definition of ideology and what that means today, new ideologies, modern ideologies, and um, what do we do with that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jana. Um, you know, I mean, we have to go back to to the basics here. For Arendt, um, an ideology uh, is 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 something that um, is not simply an opinion, right? I can have an opinion about you know that that artificial intelligence is good and it's going to help us uh, solve a lot of the world problems, and I could have an opinion that artificial intelligence is bad and it's going to take away human initiative and maybe even lead to um you know the, the the you know the end of mankind but neither of those are ideologies an ideology emerges when you take an idea a simple idea and say it's the key to history so on the one hand um you know artificial intelligence will transform all of humanity and all problems will go away and will solve all the riddles of the universe. And, and we know this. And so because we know this, we can push it forward and we can, you know, uh, actually, you know, help bring it about that all humans are in a sense, uh, implanted with artificial intelligence or are, um, you know, sub subordinated to artificial intelligence. Then you've taken what was an opinion and turned it into a political weapon which ignores any opinion any any facts or evidence on the other side and use that to justify 
um, uh, brutal deeds and, and violence and subordination and discrimination and potentially murder and enslavement. Uh, and that's what an ideology is. And Arendt says that, you know, there were many ideas uh, in the 19th and 18th century uh, that vied for, for power, but that really only two, in her opinion, became full-on successful ideologies that were, and by successful, I mean, were able to um, persuade masses of people to, uh, to follow them uh, and to uh, provide violent military support uh, to carry them out. One of those was the ideology that interprets history as the struggle of economic classes, so, so Bolshevism or, or Marxism. Uh, which says that one class, the proletariat, should dominate over and uh, oppress and suppress the other class, the, the bourgeoisie. Uh, and the other is that the ideology that interprets history is a natural fight of races. Uh, and so, um, you know, in 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 Europe, in the in the early 20th century, you had the idea that uh, uh, an Aryan class or a Nordic uh, race will and should dominate and repress Semitic races. Uh, and in other parts of the world, um, uh, in you know England and the United States, primarily, you had an idea that a white race will and should uh, be able to enslave and and control and subordinate um, black and and other races. And so these were ideologies, and they were weaponized and political. And while there may have been some science behind the Darwinism, the Darwinist uh, understandings of racism or the Marxist understandings of socialism. They weren't scientific ideologies. They were political weapons, and she calls them pseudoscientific. Uh, you know, there are many uh, opinions out there today. Uh, some people think that having gone to college and being an intellectual gives you the right to rule. Uh, and other people think, um, you know, intellectuals are uh, completely out of touch and should be, you know, should be killed. Uh, there, there are people who think that uh, you know, those who uh, use and and support artificial intelligence are going to make the world better. And there's other people who think that these people are inhuman and are anti-human and should be uh, stopped. You know, there's uh, an ideology which says that um, anyone who's part of a government and has settled the land and governs that land is part of a, a, a sort of settler class, a colonial class, and that they have oppressed indigenous people. And that the indigenous people should have a right to to rule and uh, free themselves from any settlers. These are all ideas, right? And none of them are necessarily ideologies, but they can be weaponized, and they can become not only ideas but ideologies that are weaponized and used to argue for discrimination, murder, enslavement, uh, the use of bodies as simply raw material for large computer-driven artificial in, you know, intelligence-organized life forms. I mean, all sorts of uh, ways that these ideas can be, can be mobilized in very dangerous and racist uh, ways. And so that's what Arendt is here trying to distinguish is, is that there are ideas, and there's always ideas that could be wrong and could be potentially dangerous, but are not yet um, political weapons. And it's really when they become ideological justifications for violence and brutal deeds that um, they become full-on ideologies that uh, she thinks are deeply dangerous. And she ties this to 
the rise of imperialism, arguing that um, what really made these ideas of racism and classism uh, into ideologies was imperialism, the need to justify the suppression uh, of other foreign peoples in, in, in colonialism, uh, or the need to justify the killing of a class in, in, in classism. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's how I think she thinks about this question of, of the difference in an opinion and an ideology. Thank you, Roger. We publish a new podcast episode every Thursday, and it is based on our virtual reading group that meets every Friday. Sometimes we have members ask questions in the chat, and here and there I promise them that I will forward the question and possibly be included in the podcast. And so I'm sorry, Roger, I'll put, I have to put you on the spot again. It's, we talked about Israel-Palestine, a very difficult and complex topic last episode. Um, and this time, our member, Alex, was wondering if you could give us an Arendtian analysis of the situation. Now, I don't know if there if there is an answer. Um, I was thinking also maybe in broader terms, violence, war in general. But um, I'm just going to forward this to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, so... Let me say I, I appreciate the questions from our members, and I and it's obviously an important question. The first thing to say is uh, I am not Hannah Arendt. I I don't know what Hannah Arendt would say. Uh, one of the things that I think I most love about Hannah Arendt is how free a thinker she is, and how hard it is to predict what she is going to say about a particular topic. I mean, at this point in my life, I've read most of her work. And I know what she says about things she's already written about, but one of the great joys is to pick up an essay of RN's for the first time and read it because you often don't know where she's going. Um, and I think she often doesn't know entirely where she's going until she figures it out. She's, uh, she really is someone who, who thinks about each particular issue. Uh, you know, on Israel, Palestine, we have a lifetime of her writing, uh, and, I think what you'll see if you read at the lifetime of her writing on the Jewish question on an Israel-Palestine is that she changes her mind uh, at times in her life. She's a Zionist. She then writes uh, uh, an essay called Zionism Reconsidered, where she uh, becomes very critical of at least the mainstream Zionism that has emerged in Israel. Uh, she doesn't think uh, that Israel should be a Jewish state. She thought it should be a Jewish homeland. And it should have been a, a a state that allowed Jews and Arabs to live together, but with a federated structure that gave each one of them a homeland. That didn't work out. You know, she worried that that would lead to all the problems that nation states led to in Europe. And, she, you know, I think she was largely right about that. And yet she became a strong supporter of the state of Israel, uh, believed deeply uh, in the importance of having a Jewish state. And um, after the 1973 war, helped lead celebrations uh, in the streets uh, to celebrate Israel's victory over the Arabs who had attacked them. So, um, you know, where she stands on this, I mean, I, you know, she also wrote a letter that was in the New York Times that she signed with Albert Einstein against uh, Menachem Begin and uh, against uh, a, a certain aspect of of uh, what she considered to be a kind of more fascist aspect of certain Jewish opinion at the time, Israeli opinion at the time. So she's very 
she's very, you know, she's on, it's hard to pin her down and I won't be able to give a, a, a you know, an answer of what she would think about this present conflict, which is taking place 60 years after she died. You know, all I can say is I think uh, she saw the problems of the state of Israel uh, as a Jewish state. I think she saw, she would certainly see the problems since 1967 of an occupation, uh, which increasingly treats the Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, especially the West Bank, uh, as, as, as second-class citizens. But uh, she would also, uh, I think, have very little patience for the kind of ideological uh, settler colonialism ideology of Hamas, and that is also uh, uh, thrown around by some of uh, Hamas's Western apologists and others. And, uh, and she certainly would have uh, very little good to say about terrorism and uh, you know the attempt to use terrorist violence uh, in towards political ends. Uh, in fact, that's what she thought Begin and his people were doing, and she disagreed with it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, look, I think the Middle East problems and the Israel-Palestine problem is one of the most historically dense, complicated problems we have, and any simplified ideological attempt to solve it uh, is going to go wrong. So um, I'm certainly not an expert enough to offer a solution. Plenty of many people who know much more about this have tried to find solutions to this problem and failed. And I, all I can say is that to me, the whole story of what's going on in the Middle East is a tragedy uh, for both peoples. Um, and what we're seeing right now uh, is a tragedy both for the Jews in Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza. And uh, I, I feel terribly uh, for both sides. Thank you, Roger. Uh, before we begin, um, just a quick reminder that we do have a number of dialogue groups uh, that are continuing to meet to talk about these and other topics. And Susan Oberman, who's online today and is one of our members, runs those dialogue groups for us. So you can either email her or or email us at rntbar.edu and we can connect you with her. And if you'd like to join one of those dialogue groups, they're really quite productive. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Thrilled to be with you today for our virtual reading group, which is continuing to read The Origins of Totalitarianism, one of the great books of the 20th century. And to many people's minds, and probably my own, uh, you know, the real uh, magnum opus of Arendt. Uh, when I first taught this book uh, in a seminar, I, I came to really believe that everything Arendt ever wrote uh, was already contained in this book, um, in some, some explicitly some, you know, in situ. Uh, but um, I, I, I do believe that. And uh, it's simply an extraordinary book. So I'm really happy to be. Uh, reading it with you all here. The book is in three parts. First part on anti-Semitism, which we've been uh, we went through um, for four weeks. The second part is on imperialism, and the third part is on totalitarianism. We are in the midst of our discussion of imperialism. 
as I said last week, this is really the core of the book. The imperialism section is where Arendt talks about the main origins, the main elements uh, that underlie and make possible totalitarianism. Obviously, when we get to the last section on totalitarianism, we'll be talking more about totalitarianism itself. Uh, but this is this is the, the core. And in the last session, where we talked about uh, the chap- chapter five, uh, the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie, we talked about how the work of Thomas Hobbes um, and, and his idea that man is a kind of power-seeking proton, someone who wants power rather than reason, that, um, that this idea of Hobbes ended up being uh, the philosophy of the bourgeoisie. And as uh, the bourgeoisie, which is a, a group of people who are uh, who, who try and make money and 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 work and gain increasing power in society, um, she says that in imagining man as the bourgeoisie as this power-seeking being, Hobbes quote provided political thought with the prerequisite for all race doctrines, that is, with the exclusion in principle. Of the idea of humanity. It's on 156. The idea here is that um, if you really do see man as simply someone who seeks more power and more power and more power, there are no limits. And if there are no limits, if reason is simply reckoning, if man as a rational being is simply a reckoning being who, who seeks to reckon and acquire more power, then there are no limits both in private and in public life, and expansion becomes the only aim of man. And that's where imperialism fits in, because when the bourgeoisie comes to govern in politics, um, they become imperialists. They come to be opposed to the limits of the nation state. Uh, There's no limits in the desire for power, whether it's in private economic life or in imperialist politics. And since power must always expand and increase if it's not to die, we enter a realm of politics in which there are simply no restraints and and no limits. And when that happens, even though Hobbes himself doesn't speak about races, once you understand that idea of power, of, of life as a war of all against all, each people for itself each race for itself, Arendt sees that this becomes the foundation for racial politics. And she writes on page 157, if it should prove to be true that we are imprisoned in Hobbes' endless process of power accumulation, then the organization of the mob will inevitably uh, take the form of the transformation of nations into races. For there is, under the condition of an accumulating society, no other unifying bond available between individuals who, in the very process of power accumulation and expansion, are losing all natural connections to their fellow men. What the point here is that if you actually believe that it's all about the endless process of power accumulation, then not only I individually am trying to acquire power over my fellow citizens, but I as a German or a Frenchman or a Jew or a 
Arab or whatever I am, begin to see that I'm trying to acquire power in my society um, over others. And we transform ourselves from, from humans and from, and from citizens into races. And she says that race equals the death of humanity. And so she says at the end of this chapter, once the idea of humanity can no longer restrain the drive for power, we see no limits on those theories that claim brown, yellow, or black races are descended from some other species of apes than the white race, and that all together are predestined to war against each other until they have disappeared from the face of the earth. And it's at this point that Arendt warns that the descent from humanity into races is, quote, politically speaking, not the beginning of humanity, but its end. Okay, so that's how she ends the first chapter of imperialism on the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie. The idea that the bourgeoisie, which is the class of society that cares about power over all else, as it becomes political and, and becomes politically emancipated, it turns politics into imperialism and overtakes nations and nationalism, which actually offer a restraint. So um, already we see a number of what she calls the elements of totalitarianism. One is uh, the rise of the bourgeoisie. Totalitarianism is a bourgeois, is, is in some sense a, a result of or a consequence of the rise of the bourgeoisie, which by that we mean the rise of a class that seeks power over all else and without limit. Totalitarianism also has its origin in imperialism, which is the political side of the rise of power and the bourgeoisie. And now we see also a third element of totalitarianism, uh, which is related to the first two, which is the rise of, of race, racism and race thinking. And, and so the rise of racism is, is core to her understanding of the origins of totalitarianism. Now, the next two chapters, chapters six and seven, are called um, Race Thinking Before Racism and Race and Bureaucracy. And they um, are really about uh, racism and its role in the origin of totalitarianism. If you, you know, it's not exact, but we can say that chapter six, which we're reading today, Race Thinking Before Racism, is, is, is more about um, race thinking. And chapter seven on race and bureaucracy uh, is more about racism. And yet uh, they both contain uh, elements of, of, of each. And, and that's actually something we have to understand is that Arendt is here trying to make a distinction. And we've talked about this a lot in this group, for those of you who've been with us, with us for a lot, that she's a thinker of distinctions. She tries to bring clarity uh, to, to language and to concepts that actually are phenomenologically related to the world. And since racism is going to be so important for her, she makes an effort to distinguish it from race thinking. Okay, so what is racism? Um, in this chapter, uh, which is largely about race thinking, she distinguishes it from racism, and she has what I would argue are four theses about racism. The first thesis is that on page 158, is announced on 158, where she says, Racism has been the powerful ideology of imperialist politics since the turn of our century. So um, racism is an ideology, and it's an ideology of imperialist politics. 
and it emerged at the turn of the 20th century. So those are three elements within that idea that racism is a powerful ideology of imperialist politics. The second is that racism and all ideologies are not scientific, but political. They're political weapons, and their scientific aspect is always secondary. So that racism, as she says, is the main ideological weapon of imperialist politics. What is an ideology? It's it's an important uh, point. And on page 159, she uh, goes into a bit of detail on what she means by an ideology. She actually will talk about this a number of times in the book, but this is one of them and one of the most important. And so I just want to uh, make make it clear. So on 159, she says, quote, an ideology, right? And racism is an ideology. An ideology differs from a simple opinion in that it claims to possess either the key to history or the solution for all the riddles of the universe or the intimate knowledge of the hidden universal laws which are supposed to rule nature and man. Little complicated. What does she mean by an ideology? It's not a simple opinion. You know, if I say Jews are greedy, right? It's a classic anti-Semitic trope. Um, that's not racism. That's an opinion. And it can be a racial opinion, which it is, because I'm talking about a racial group, Jews. Um, but it doesn't say anything else. It doesn't possess the key to history. It doesn't offer a solution for all the riddles of the universe or the intimate knowledge of the hidden universal laws which apply to rule nature and man. And so she says, in order to understand what an ideology is, we have to understand there's really, it's worth understanding this. She says there's only two, two ideologies that have really been successful up through the 20th century. She says there's, a, there's a been a bunch of ideologies that have been tried but only two have been successful. And I think if we understand those two, it begins to help understand what ideologies are. She says the first one is the ideology that interprets history as a struggle of economic classes. Obviously, this is whatever you want to call it, communism, Marxism, Bolshevism, etc. The idea here is that um, there's different classes. There's the bourgeoisie and there's the proletariat, and they're in a class struggle. and um, we have this idea that uh, one class, the bourgeoisie, is corrupt and decadent, and the other class, the proletariat, is, 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 is authentic and will eventually triumph over the bourgeoisie. And so this ideology offers the key to history. If you understand it, you understand that eventually one class will triumph over the others of necessity and thus... Um, we actually can just help it along through politics, and it becomes a political weapon to degrade the bourgeoisie and to uh, elevate the proletariat. She says the other ideology that has uh, become popular is um, the one that interprets history as a natural fight of the races, namely racism or anti-Semitism as, as one example of that. And in this ideology, again, it's to say that certain race call it the Jews, you know, are less than human and, uh, and will be, and, and need to be vanquished or exterminated in order to allow the, um, higher races, uh, to thrive. She says about these ideologies that they appeal to large masses of people 
and they have a tremendous power of persuasion. And that's really important for us to understand. What is the tremendous power of persuasion of ideologies? Um, it's not from science, right? I mean, she, she thinks that Darwin is, Darwinism is the sort of science underlying racism, the idea that there's certain uh, peoples that are fitter or better than others, social Darwinism. And historical laws and dialectical materialism is the science underlying Marxism. She says, but when they become ideologies, they're cut loose from science. Because she says what every full-fledged ideology is, is not a science, but a political weapon. Its scientific aspect is secondary. Um, and the key of an ideology is that it seeks to provide watertight arguments, right? Arguments that can't be argued against. And that's not going to be science because science provides, you know, um, you know, it provides hypotheses that can be argued against and you can test them. The point of, of, of ideologies is once you believe it, any facts that actually run counter to it are ignored. And so she, she offers examples of, of scientists who um, provide arguments for racism uh, that are completely counterfactual and yet they continue to provide them because they're ideologies and not sciences. And so she says, it's simply a fact that racism is the main ideological weapon of the imperialists. And so it's really important that we understand this idea, idea of ideology and we can come back to it. So if the, first, uh, if the first thesis of racism is that racism is a powerful ideology of imperialism, the second is that racism is, is an, as an ideology is not scientific but political. The third is that racism is an explanation for the deeds of imperialism. And the fourth is that racism is not nationalism. In fact, on the contrary, racism tends to destroy the body politic of the nation, body politic of the nation. Because the whole point of a racism, it unites people based on race, and people of races live in all different nations. And so you seek to um, connect yourself transnationally, internationally. Uh, we, you know, this is, I think, obvious from the communist or socialist point of view, the international. Um, but it's also, uh, she thinks, absolutely essential to understand Nazism and, and racism because these are transnational movements. Okay. Once we understand sort of what racism is, this chapter is actually about not so much racism, but a earlier phenomena, which she calls race thinking. Now, the difference between race thinking and racism is that while racism is a ideology and thus a pseudoscience and thus a political weapon for imperialist politics, race thinking is simply an opinion, one of the many free opinions. And so she says on page 183 at the very end of this chapter that this chapter was the, as an attempt to tell the history or the story of an opinion. Uh, the opinion that races matter, but not necessarily the story of racism where it becomes a political weapon. So she says, again, I, I said this earlier, but she says that only a few of the opinions have become full-fledged ideology, right? There are a lot of opinions out there. People have opinions about, you know, races and they have opinions about classes, but they also have opinions like, you know, we, we're seeing one right now very much in the news. Um, that uh, indigenous people are to be privileged over people who are settlers or people who live in established states. 
will that become an ideological political weapon in the you know that justifies uh political goals well it may uh, it's certainly being used that way in in israel and palestine um and and it may end up as a new ideology a third one and there are other uh, opinions that people have uh, all over the world about um you know humans versus ai right you know what is our opinions on this stuff uh and will one be true and one not will do we want to perfect human beings and these are all free thinking opinions that people can have but only a few of them become full-fledged ideologies only a few of them become systems based on a single opinion that are persuasive enough that they attract and persuade a majority of people and lead them to uh, a political uh, program. In this chapter, looks at what she calls five opinions about race, free opinions, early versions of race thinking, which she says all were race thinking, but none of them were yet racism. Uh, and it's an important, I think, helpful distinction. I, you know, it's and a lot of it you have to know a fair bit of history on, and 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 we can always come back to it. But let me try and at least talk about a few of the most important ones. The first one, which is uh, section one of the of this chapter, she calls a race of aristocrats, and is largely built on someone named Boulian Villiers, um, who is a French uh, noble, and and he develops this idea that the people in French are divided between the Franks and the uh, and the Gauls, the Teutons and the Gauls, and and the idea here is that the Teutons, um, the German sort of Teutons, had were not the aboriginal people of France. They came in, but they conquered France. And so Boulenvay says, look, these Teutons who became the aristocrats were actually better than the original aboriginal people because they were stronger than them. They conquered them. And um, because of this strength and their might, they're right, says Boulenville, um, and that they should actually rule. And so he has this idea that the people who conquered are stronger, might makes right, and, and, and they should be in power. Um, RN says, look, he was, an, he was a free thinker. Uh, he talks not about races per se, but about peoples, but he has a kind of distinction between peoples that, that is certainly a, an element of race thinking. But she says, Boulianvier didn't weaponize this thinking. He didn't try and turn it into a justification for killing people or excluding people. It was more of an idea. It was more of a, an opinion, and it didn't really go anywhere. The second race opinion that Arendt talks about is race thinking in Germany in the 19th century. And she says that this race thinking emerged first in the shift from language to blood. So that originally the German race thinking was linguistic, but uh, it comes to take an actual idea of 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 soil and blood. That there's a kind of um, being born on German soil gives you a kind of kind of claim to uh, to elitism of some sort. They invented a kind of organic blood unity, she says. But even so, she says this is an actual racism, since within Germany they sought to create a nation of equals. Anyone of any race or any origin who was born in Germany would now have German blood. Uh, and so at least in the 19th century, she says this kind of German blood racism was still not uh, a, a political weapon of imperialism. The third, and I think the most famous and widely discussed of her examples, 
is um, Count Arthur de Gobineau's, uh and his essay on the inequality of races. He's a French thinker. And for many people, he's considered to be the first racist. Gobineau, in his very famous essay on the inequality of human races, uh, is worried about the decline of human civilization. And he seeks a cause for the rise and fall and for the decadence of European civilization. And his argument is that French and European civilization are endangered by the mixing of the races. So he prophecies that the doom of civilization comes from a mixture of blood. And he wants to resist that by creating what he calls a new elite to replace the old defeated aristocracy. He's actually responding to Boulainvillier and Boulainvillier's argument that the Teutonic nobility had been corrupted. And uh, and 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 Gobineau says it is so because of a mix of blood. And he wants this new elite to emerge um, as a group of people who feel themselves superior. And he says the proof of your superiority was that you accept that that you're of a higher race and, and that you, it, you, you accept your superiority and that this would provide a bulwark against corruption, democracy, and, and, and the loss of, of, of kind of a higher civilization. Now, this sounds a lot like racism, and Gobineau is widely considered a racist. But Arendt argued that Gobineau instead offered a pseudoscientific theory of decline based on race. And while she says he, quote, invented racism almost by accident on page uh, 172, she says that if you actually read him closely, what he offers is a, an account that distinguished his race thinking from racism. She says that he's more of a romantic who idealizes and idolizes notions of nobility um, and not a racist who supports violence and oppression. Gobineau wanted to elevate a race over others. He did. But he had no interest in weaponizing that. He wasn't yet offering his race thinking as a doctrine um, to, to kill, oppress, enslave, etc. other people. And so she says his race thinking betrayed, quote, the inherent irresponsibility of romantic opinions more than the brutality of racist ideologies. Right? Nowhere does Gobineau propose racial murder, racial slavery, racial criteria for citizenship and rights. Unlike the race laws in South Africa or the bureaucratic rule of Africans and Indians in Egypt and India or the chattel slavery of Africans in the Americas and the racial genocide of Jews by the Nazis, unlike all of them, Gobineau and, uh, and other race thinkers for Arendt never move beyond opinions. As she writes uh, at the end of um, this section on page 183, she says, there is an abyss between the men of brilliant and facile conceptions and the men of brutal deeds. All of these race thinkers are for her men of facile and brilliant conceptions, both brilliant and facile, simple and brilliant. They're stupid, but they have opinions that get that are interesting and that persuade people, but they're not brutal deeds. They're not justifying brutal deeds. The fourth example she offers is uh, Edmund Burke and the idea of the rights of Englishmen versus the rights of man. Um, you know, the Burke and and has this idea that it, the Englishmen um, acquire certain rights simply by inheritance, what he calls entailed inheritance, and makes the English a nobility of nations. 
What all of this means, and this is sort of the fifth um, point she wants to make, and it's not articulated as a distinct point in the text, but I think we have to see it as such, is that when we look at this history of race thinking and separate it from races, we have to understand that there's a shift that happens. The shift is from the idea of mankind to the idea of races. This is the shift we talked about with Hobbes at the end of the last chapter. In the 18th century, she says, people like Gobineau still believed, I mean, they believed in a variety of races. They may have even believed in superiority of some races, but they still believed in the unity of the human species. Um, they still believed that there was an idea of mankind. And Arendt makes uh, a claim here, which I actually think, well, I think is going to be shocking to many people. Uh, but I think has been uh, actually is quite um, supported by a lot of the literature, including a lot of the most recent literature on racism and anti-racism, where she says that even American slavery, when it started, didn't think in terms of race. Yes, it was the, it was mostly enslaved. The people enslaved were mostly uh, black Africans, although not all. There were other indentured servants, but the Americans who enslaved them and the British who enslaved them and others, she says, thought that slavery was temporary. They expected it to be gradually abolished. They knew it was unjust, but they did it and they justified it on Christian grounds, on power grounds, on all sorts. But she says it was only later that slavery um, came to be justified on racist grounds. Only as it was ending or close to ending and people began to see slavery as unjust, that those who defended slavery began to create racist ideological justifications for slavery. In other words, only once race had become a practical problem does racism emerge to justify um, racism. And this is now, I think, a commonly accepted idea. It's one that Ibrahim Kendi argues Kenan Malik, who just gave a talk at the, at the RN Center last week, made a similar point that um, uh, racism uh, is a justification for already existing racial difference. It's not the cause of racial difference. Um, and it's at this point, she says, uh, when racism and when the, when the already existing unjust discrimination based on races comes to be seen, that a whole new series of um of racist ideas begin to emerge and she talks about a few one is polygenesis the idea that uh against the bible this is a religious interpretation there's not simply the whole human race uh there's predestined racial superiority uh the second was the rise of darwinism and the idea of progress and she thinks this is the most important one she says that darwinism sets the inheritance as the ground for race thinking, that man could breed a better race, um, that that there's a development from apes to a higher race. And um, the Darwinism, she says, met with such overwhelming success on page 178 because it provided on the basis of inheritance the ideological weapons for race as well as class rule and could be used for as well as against race discrimination. The point is that what Darwinism said is each race that succeeds was fitter than the race that came before it. And so 
if we are one of the race who succeeds, we can say we succeeded because we're better. Might makes right. Um, and while she says that in in one sense Darwinism is politically neutral, you could you can argue that the success of one race uh, over another, um, you know, uh, happened for different reasons. You can even argue that we should help the lower races and and and, and argue against them. In most cases, or in many cases, Darwinism became an ideological weapon to justify um, the elevation of one race over another. And so these are the these are these race thinkers from Gobineau, the Darwinians, and others uh, that she thinks uh, preceded racism, but made race thinking part of our our common sense of the world. And as it did so made race one of the common opinions that could be mobilized as a political weapon. Um, and that's what she thinks happens. And we'll talk about how that happens in the next chapter, chapter seven on race and bureaucracy. And she thinks it happens in the context of imperialism, which is why this is all part of this big book on imperialism. I just want to end by just talking about a couple of these extraordinary quotes uh, on pages 182 and 183 and 184 at the end of this chapter where she says um there is an abyss between men of brilliant and facile conceptions and men of brutal deeds i already quoted that earlier when i talked about gobineau but but this is important because she sees racism as a weapon of imperialism she wants to distinguish ideological racism from opinions that are race thinking and then she says even these imperialists and eugenicists who were not like gobineau were not full-on racist because they still hoped to contribute to a new unity of mankind they wanted to create a, a place where we could all be human she says um the real transition to racism happens when we seek to justify rule over foreign populations in colonialism and imperialism and she says, imperialism would have necessitated the invention of racism as the only possible explanation and excuse for its deeds if it didn't already have it and if it wasn't already there through this race thinking. And so that's the argument she's making, that this race thinking was there. It was, it was facile. It was brilliant. It was sometimes prejudicial. It was sometimes discriminatory. It could be neutral. But it only became truly violent and dangerous when it became used as a justification for imperial domination or for slavery. And that's her argument in this chapter on race thinking and racism. I think it's one of the most powerful uh, attempts to understand uh, and, and really articulate what racism is that we have. But it's obviously uh, contested and I'm happy to, I'm looking forward to the conversation with you today. So uh, again, complicated, difficult subjects, feel free to uh, agree or disagree with me or with Arendt, uh, but please, uh, as you talk to people in the chat and, and in our conversations, attack the arguments, um, be civil. Thank you very much. Let's see, John. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Hi there. Um, okay. Uh, I want to try to simplify it so that I can understand it better. And I think one of the things that she's uh, getting at is the notion of equality, paternity, um, 
etc. in the French Revolution and the American revolutions, the idea of equality as a new governing principle for human beings uh, versus the old idea of hierarchy, um, which is quite ancient and preceded both the American and French revolutions. And that idea of hierarchy is, is built into a lot of our thinking. Certainly, uh, Hobbes implies it. It's certainly in Plato with the myth of metals. Uh, how are we going to get people to accept this uh, notion of the state that uh, Socrates is getting at in the Republic? And, uh, well, we have to convince them that uh, some are born gold and some are silver and some are iron or something. Um, and those are like, like races or classes or uh, different orders of being. Some people are simply better than others. So this idea of equality um, presented an opportunity for the bourgeoisie, the rising bourgeoisie, uh, who are using market mechanisms to rise in the world. They uh, are envious of the nobility, uh, who are a privileged class, and now they see their opportunity to make themselves analogous to the nobility and even overcome the nobility. Um, and this is Marx's critique, uh, uh, it, it seems to me, uh, of the, the, the bourgeoisie and their motives. One more thing, uh, Hobbesian's, Hobbes's notion of power uh, and uh, the, the, the state of nature is a war of all against all, uh, is also Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche um, uh, claims that power is the ultimate motive uh, for everything that human beings do, to acquire power. Uh, not just power over others, but in a deeper sense, power over themselves, uh, which is at the root of the virtue ethics of, of Aristotle. All right, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to um, uh, put my understanding of, of Arendt's ideas uh, into my own kind of vocabulary and understanding of where they came from. Thanks, John. Yep. Um, a couple things. Uh, one, um, Yes, I mean, I, I don't know if you were with us last week, but uh, I certainly did talk about the confluence between Hobbes and Nietzsche uh, on these questions. Um, and uh, and you're absolutely right that um, there is a, an element of, of Nietzsche uh, and, and the will to power uh, in this as, as well. The difference, uh, there, there, there's also differences. Um, Nietzsche... Uh, is not um, a philosopher of what we would call the bourgeoisie, right? Uh, his his idea of uh, of the will to power is much more internal and uh, and philosophical than than Hobbes's. Uh, it's not a, a justification for um, an absolute state or of imperialism, uh, which is what Arendt reads Hobbes's to be. Reading, you know, to take to, to read Nietzsche seriously and to understand uh, the the depth of of his will to power, uh, which in the end uh, turns into a kind of um, will for the eternal return of the same, or a kind of amor fati, uh, um, is is a much more uh, profound reconciliation with uh, uh, the world, uh, in such that uh, we we accept uh, and love the world. 
and the fate of it. Anyway, uh, there's a connection between him and Hobbes, no doubt, uh, but, but I think with very different projects. On the first question of equality and hierarchy, I mean, you know, it's interesting you're bringing these up. I'm not entirely sure where the question comes from. Uh, you know, earlier on in the text, when we were reading about anti-Semitism, RN does place equality and the rising equality of the uh, 19th century as at the center of, of the rise of anti-Semitism, largely because uh, she saw um, the, the rising equality offering uh, a problem for any group that wanted to remain separate and not assimilate into society like the Jews did. She doesn't talk so much about equality uh, in in this chapter. It's not a, it's not a theme. Uh, she's interested here in something different. The real focus of this chapter is not equality and the rise of, of anti-Semitism. The real focus of this chapter is how an opinion about something, be it the importance of races or the importance of classes, moves from being an opinion which we talk about and maybe sometimes you know bring up in conversation or bring up in in discussions because it actually helps us understand a bit of the world an opinion like that how it moves from being an opinion to being a political weapon um to justify uh colonization uh barbarism slavery and extermination that's what she's interested in here and so it's really not um, you know, you don't have much in this chapter uh, about equality um, because she's not interested in uh, the particular uh, problems with uh, anti-Semitism and Jews who want to be different and yet are caught up in a world in which um, uh, there's a demand for equality. And so, um, I, you know, uh, I, I think equality and the and she she calls equality one of the truly equivocal and problematic ideas of our time um because what it means is it's a real challenge to any group that wants to remain different thus it's a challenge to the idea of plurality which is why Arendt in her work who's a huge proponent of equality says that equality is absolutely essential in politics but is dangerous when it is enters into the social realm and demands that people assimilate uh in order to um uh, to be able to live in a in a particular equal civilization, um, but that's not what's really going on here in this chapter. Uh, and so I, I just want to keep our focus in this chapter on the uh, the emergence of weapon of political weapons for domination, extermination, and enslavement, which is what she calls racism. Is that all right, John? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's just the, the the mystery of those two ideologies, class and and race. Uh, the answer to that, the simple answer to that, would be that it uh, seems to accord with the felt experience of most human beings, and they human beings are both individuals, but they're also members of groups, and group identity, being belonging to a group, gives one a certain security. Um, if I belong to this group, then the people in the other group, if they attack me, I will have allies. I mean, let me let me let me respond to that because that's a great point. Um, you know what she says is 
uh, there is an incredible uh, persuasive power uh, to these ideologies, right? What is the source of this persuasive power? Um, she says it comes from a couple of places. One is uh, experience. Another is, she says, the tremendous power of persuasion inherent in the main ideologies of our times is not accidental. I think this is your point, John. This is on 159. Persuasion is not possible without appeal to either experiences or desires, right? Or to immediate political needs. In other words, to middle immediate political needs. So you said, look, there's a need to feel a belonging to a group. And you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons, you know, that I have been making this argument that cosmopolitans, which I am, have to accept that as much as we might want to and believe that cosmopolitan is important and, and, and speaks to our experience, there's also an importance to tribalism. There's also an importance to belonging. And the point is, though, to hold both those things is to not think ideological. It's to understand that reality is complicated. And there are different drives and different needs and different desires and different experiences. What happens, what we have to understand is that the rise of racism and classism as ideologies accords to a need to simplify reality so much that we make it about only one thing. All thing, class defines everything or race defines everything. And at that point, it's not actually supported by my experience. It requires me to suppress my experience, repress facts that I know are true, but that would disprove that ideology. And so um, ideological thinking is profoundly anti-real. It's fictional. Um, but it, we, what she says is, and she'll say this in, in part three of the book on totalitarianism, it responds to a deep human need to have one explanation, to feel as if the world is simplified, especially when the world feels so disordered and complicated and we feel so adrift. Ideology answers our need for simplicity, and that's where the persuasive power of ideology comes from. Uh, and so, um, and that's, that's her argument. In, in, in that way. Rachel. Hi. Um, wow. I, I, I have a couple comments. I want to begin by affirming what you said about um, everything being in the origins of totalitarianism and in, in, in this chapter, and, and maybe with one nuance touching on the question of equality. And I was really struck by at the beginning, how she talks about, you know, the idea of mankind and how that uh, provided a guarantee for, she says, the equality and solidarity of mankind. And so I think she, it's very fascinating the way she describes all these different types of race thinking, not all of which, some of which could be partially weaponized, but not necessarily weaponized, but some which could be completely innocent, just like curiosity about the others. And, and I think it's a good point for some of our scholarship today, because 
sometimes um, we look at old texts and they differentiate between different groups and and we assume that it must be racist just because they're differentiating but it might be that they had a kind of scholarship based on curiosity and i thought that was one point in which she, she really uh, gets to the nuances of things but that this aspect of the unity of mankind i think this is also um something that kind of reflects i guess what we might say is the ontological difference in her work overall and we, we can see the same sort of framework in her later works for instance in the human condition where she's going to talk about earth alienation it's the same thing about being alienated from uh the 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 natural being as it is given to to human beings that you are an animal and they are your brothers and sisters and it's the same paradigm i would say in the framework of crimes against humanity in Eichmann in Jerusalem, because there, remember, a crime against humanity, as she defines it, is breaking off apart from that which is given the the family of mankind, where every part has a right to be. And I would say you could see the same thing in the expansive sense of the phenomena of plurality in the life of the mind. So I really just want to underscore the degree to which that's um, ever present a second point is that i think it's it's yeah, what roger was just mentioning about um authoritarian nationalism of fascism being a form of government um and th this is one point among many in which she mentions mussolini in this chapter and, and differentiates him from totalitarianism and among all of the uh you know unique ways in which we might have race thinking she mentions mussolini not because he was a race thinker but because he was a cynical romantic who had this idea of the development of personality and so his his version of um of, of fascism was that every individual should self-actualize themselves in a in a romantic sense and and that's one key point where we have to say Mussolini was not like Hitler or Stalin as she describes it because Hitler and Stalin have a completely totalizing vision um i i would i wanted to maybe raise a question about um, whether or not we could say that Arendt's uh, view of, of the weaponization of science and uh, ideology would fit into the framework of Kendi, because I think she's making an even more powerful statement. It's not that the ideologies justify, simply justify the exploitation that is already there. The weapons are developed in the process of exploitation. And so uh, the racism as a weaponized ideology of imperialism, I think if you follow the text carefully, you'll see we've got Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, and he is already getting going in the you know, 1860s, I think. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a very important point because she says, you know, every time you have a full-blown weaponized ideology, even if it's put in scientific terms, you can see that the motivation is really the political one. And that's, and, and I think this is, this is a really a key thing. It's not just justifying what's already there. It's a weapon that is creating the reality that's there. Um, and, uh, I, I think that, that, that connects us to, um, a point in which this this chapter really expresses, you know, what's really at stake in the text a lot, because she mentions um, 
Huxley, Thomas Huxley, and he is like the epitome of utilitarianism and biopolitics at the end of the last century. And he is a full-on eugenicist. If you follow the footnote, he, you know, he in his book, he basically says the key to preserving the um, British Empire is to continually call the domestic population to keep the birth rate under control. He's a Malthusian eugenicist. And um, his grandson, um, uh, Julian Huxley, who is, you know, just been head, is the head of UNESCO at the UN when Arendt is writing this, is a full-on eugenicist too, and also the um, originator of transhumanism. Transhumanism is going to be mentioned um, under the you know rubric of evolutionary biology, which is what uh, Huxley also called uh, you know his philosophy, and that's going to be explicitly featured in the last chapter of imperialism. And I think that when we um, we think about which ideologies are out there now vying for totalitarian status, transhumanism fits into. Arendt's framework perfectly. It's a eugenicist, Darwinian um, attempt to remake humanity. And it, it also has, it's not just trying to justify what already exists. It is trying to recreate humanity in a sense. And if you if you read like Klaus Schwab's book on the on the Great Reef set, you will see that he uses a totalitarian ideology, like predictive things like um there's gonna be a new race of people that are augmented by artificial intelligence and hooked up to the internet and all this kind of stuff. And then the rest of the people are going to be left behind and they're going to be only subhuman. And it, it's really quite um, surprising, but it's directly parallel to the language that um, Julian Huxley was using at the time and his grandfather used before when they were searching for the missing link. And um, and I think that... Um, Rachel, I uh, want to respond. I want to say that, um, you know, very interesting, especially the last two things you you, you said. I mean, the others are, are right and fine, but I want to respond to the last two because I think they're fascinating, and I want to thank you for them. This idea um, that you know that that I've tried to emphasize that ideology uh, is um, the weaponization uh, of of an opinion, an idea um, for imperialist or 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 ends, or for the ends of. Um, uh, enslaving, killing, exterminating, et cetera, a, a people for the expansion of power. Um, you know, and, and I said in response to George's question, you know, that, um, you know, there are other ideologies today. And I mentioned one of indigeneity. I think earlier on, I mentioned AI, um, and you brought it up again. And I just want to say, I think that's really right. Um, eugenics like racism is, I think, discredited mostly today. That said, it has a new version, right? In transhumanism, as you rightly put it. And, and, and you know, again, transhumanism is, would, would be considered, I think, as another form of race thinking. It's not necessarily an ideology. It's an idea that, you know, uh, we can remake. I mean, Kurzweil is, you know, he's, he says, look, we can, we can um, improve humanity. Um, and, and, and we can uh, eventually lead to a kind of uh, rational human life that will be a better life. 
Um, it doesn't have to be weaponized, but it can be. Uh, another ideology today that I've written a lot about in the last five years and, and that I think is one of the dominant ideologies today um, would be that of um, intellectualism or, or expertism. Um, the idea that um, people who are trained experts uh, are better able to um, uh, judge what is right and wrong uh, than people who are not a kind of elitism. Uh, and, and, and you've seen, um, you're seeing a huge contest right now between, uh, those who believe in the rightful justified power of experts, uh, versus those who think that, uh, experts have no, uh, inborn higher ability to know what a better form of government is. And so these are all forms of, of, of what you might call race thinking, thinking about free thinking about ideas in our society that could become and at times may become ideologies. And I think, um, Rachel, you did a really great job of, of, of articulating. We're at a time of, of real intellectual foment where a lot of these ideas are in the air. And the question is, uh, and I think you're seeing a lot of attempts to politically weaponize these ideas, whether it be transhumanism or experts or anti-experts or, um, uh, or, or, or indigeneity or whatever. And the question is, can those of us who are in an Arendtian vein uh, committed to non-ideological thinking, um, can we uh, maintain the complexity of, of, of our world against these uh, very powerful, um, politically persuasive uh, simplifications and ideologies. And, and that's really the challenge for many of us today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and Auf Wiedersehen.